Exodus chapter 17. Who can tell me what the number one takeaway from yesterday was? Not you, Mike. Sorry. Jess. Exactly. The Lord Jesus, in his present place of glory and exaltation, wants to have us near him. Close to him. Now, um, I'll give you the number one takeaway from today. He wants us to be happy. Actually, not happy. If you wrote happy already, scrub it out. And instead put joyful. And, um, you know, I'm always encouraged the way the Holy Spirit works. In every one of those songs that we sang, the major thing was joy. Oh Lord, tis joy to look above. And the one Phil gave out, I can't remember the exact words, but it was focusing on joy. He wants us to be joyful. And um, the great thing about joy is it's better than happiness because happiness is the opposite of sadness. You can't be happy and sad. But you can be joyful and sad. And that's quite a remarkable thing. He wants us to be joyful. There are things that come into our lives that stop us being joyful. And this is what I want to look at today. And this is connected with the service of the Lord Jesus towards us as our advocate. This is one of his great glories and activities for us. Now he's at the right hand of God. So we'll read from Exodus chapter 17 just as an introduction. Start at verse 8. And Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses had said to him, to fight with Amalek. And Moses... Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And it came to pass when Moses raised his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And Moses' hands were heavy. Then they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands. One on this side and one on that side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua broke the power of Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And just um, the end of verse 16. Jehovah will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Two kinds of warfare that we, as the people of God, can face. One is a warfare of constant failure. And that's described in Romans chapter 7. 
And that's the kind of warfare that God is going to place every one of us through. A warfare of constant failure. A warfare in which we say, I wish I could do the right thing, and I'm trying to do the right thing, but no matter how much I try and do the right thing, I keep doing the wrong thing. And I want to stop doing things that are, are, are wrong and bad and disgraceful and dragging me down. And every time I try and stop, I just find it's impossible. That's the warfare of failure. And everyone who comes to know the Lord has to go through that. But there is an end point to that. And the end point to that comes at the end of Romans chapter 7, when you reach out to the one who is the deliverer. When you set your eye upon one who is the only one that can drag you out of it, because you can't drag yourself out of it. And in, in coming to know him as deliverer, and really that's coming to the full and proper knowledge of the redemptive work of Christ, then you come into a warfare of victory. And in the warfare of victory, it says this in Galatians chapter 5, the verse, it's verse 17. It says, The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are opposed to one another, so that you should not do those things that you desire. When the spirit of God is there, when in the figure here that we've read, in the book of Exodus. When Joshua is there with his sword, then there's going to be victory against Amalek. Amalek is a picture of the flesh. Joshua is a picture of the Holy Spirit working within the believer. The Spirit is against the flesh, and the Spirit is going to have victory over the flesh. But how is that possible? That's possible because Moses is up on the top of the mountain, or the hill, interceding and we read yesterday and I want to read that verse again in Romans chapter 8 about the Lord Jesus at the right hand of God it's Romans 8 verse 34 I think yeah and remember the verse numbers are in the wrong spot in Romans 8 so Romans 8 verse 34 starts halfway through the verse. It says, It is Christ who has died, but rather has been also raised up, who is also at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? At the right hand of God, he's interceding for us. That's a big word, intercede. And in order to understand it, God has given us a picture in the form of three men. There's Moses, and he's standing on the hill, and his hands are up in the air. Now Moses is just a man. And so, because he's just a man, men get weak, don't they? You, know, like, you try and do that for about a minute and a half and see what happens. And, and so Aaron and Hur had gone up the mountain with Moses. Because if Moses is going to be a suitable picture of Christ, he can't be a picture of Christ on his own. He's just a man. It's going to take at least three men to give a full picture of Christ. And so there's Moses. He's there interceding. That means he's standing there on behalf of the people, in the presence of God, looking out for the people, and making sure he's asking God for the right sorts of things so that there might be victory. But Moses is just a man. So 
there's Aaron on one side. I'm going to assume that Aaron's on the right side and her is on the left side. Aaron is what? He's a priest. What about her? What would her possibly be? Not H-E-R, H-U-R. It's the beginning of a little word that we read sometimes in the Old Testament, Urim. Urim and Thummim, that kind of strange expression we read about sometimes. Urim, Ur, Her, means light. And we're going to read in a moment in 1 John chapter 1, where it talks about God as light, and where it flows into the early verses of 1 John chapter 2, when it talks about Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous, as the one who is in the light of God, is our advocate. And so on the one side of Moses, there's Aaron, the priest. On the other side of Moses, there's her, the advocate. Because intercession, Christ at the right hand of God interceding, involves two things. One is priesthood, and the other is advocacy. And so with these two guys, here's Moses, he's now sitting down. He's seated. And we've spoken about the Lord Jesus. Seated on the right hand of God. Here's Moses, he's seated, and there's Aaron and her holding his hands up. So now we've got a complete picture of Christ. Christ interceding, intercession being priesthood and advocacy. Okay, that's the introduction. Clear? Clear as mud? Clear as light? We hope that it's going to get clearer as time goes on. We're going to reserve the subject of priesthood for tomorrow. Today we're looking at advocacy. What does the Lord Jesus do as our advocate? How does this ensure that we get victory? Before we go to 1 John chapter 1, there's something really, really important we want to be sure of. Because we have a high priest, and our high priest is there to help us not to sin. But if we sin, this side now, we have an advocate. Our high priest is a high priest in things relating to God. Our advocate is with the Father. There's a really strong distinction here. God, if we view God in his absoluteness, God is a judge. And God must judge sin. But when we're talking about our advocate, if any man sins, we don't have an advocate with God. We don't have an advocate with one who is a judge. We have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate with one in whom we are in a permanent and loving relationship. Now, in order to really get us established in this, I want to stop along the way as we turn over towards 1 John 1. Stop along the way in the book of Hebrews. Because there is an enormous contrast between what we have as Christians compared to what Israel had 
um, as people who were under the law of God. So I want to show the contrast in three ways. The first contrast, we'll look at Hebrews 9 verse 9. Halfway through the verse, Hebrews 9 verse 9, it says, Gifts and sacrifices unable to perfect as to conscience him that worshipped. In the system of the law for Israel, they had to offer sacrifices again and again and again. And those sacrifices, it says clearly here, were unable to make the conscience perfect. Now, look at the contrast with what we have as Christians in chapter 10. Hebrews. Verse 14, and I'm only going to read bits of the verse. You can read all of it. The blood of Christ to purify your conscience from dead works. A purified conscience. Um, Chapter 10, verse 2. Now it's contrasting with what they had in the Old Testament. It says, Since would they not indeed have ceased being offered, those sacrifices, on account of the worshippers once purged, having no longer any conscience of sins. And maybe... um, One other verse in chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected in perpetuity the sanctified. See the contrast? Contrast connected with our conscience. Under the Jewish system of law, those sacrifices were unable to make the conscience perfect. The sacrifice of Christ has made Conscience perfect. So, contrast number one. Contrast number two. Chapter 10, verse 3. In these, in these Old Testament sacrifices, there is a calling to mind of sins yearly. In the Old Testament sacrifices, sins were remembered. Now, look at what we have in the New Testament. Chapter 10, verse 17. Their sins and their lawlessnesses will I never remember anymore. That's what we have, Christians. Sins never remembered. So, first thing, purified conscience. Second thing, our sins never remembered anymore. And the third thing, um, third contrast in Hebrews 10, verse 11. Old Testament, Old Testament system, every high priest, same sacrifices, is always standing, standing daily. Contrast that with verse 12, Christ, but he having offered one sacrifice for sins, sat down perpetually at the right hand of God. Purified conscience, sins not remembered anymore. The work of the Lord Jesus complete, finished, he sits down. He doesn't need to stand offering sacrifices anymore. Now, we need to get this buried deeply into our hearts and in our souls when we're going to start looking at this subject of advocacy. Because if we sin, what happens? If we sin, 
Do we need a sacrifice again? Clearly not. If we sin, are we worried about God judging our sins? Are our consciences telling us, oh, now I might be on my way to hell again? Not at all. Purified conscience, sins not remembered anymore by God who would otherwise have judged sins, and no more need for any sacrifice again. Because the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is complete, he has sat down. Everyone really clear about that? I want to get some nods. Some nods? Yeah. Okay. Three huge contrasts between Old Testament and New Testament. In the New Testament, if we know Christ as our Saviour, our conscience is completely purified. We're not concerned anymore. We're not fearful about going to hell anymore. Our sins are not remembered by God anymore. Christ's sacrifice is finished. Now, don't we sin though? What, what, happened, what happens when we sin? This is where we're going to get to in 1 John chapter 1 and chapter 2. But one other thing along the way there, and this is still my way of introduction, and I've got a feeling I might need to change the way we structure things. Might have to skip address number 3 and continue address number 2. Along the way, before we get to 1 John 1, there is just something wonderful about the Lord Jesus. <coughs> Yesterday, he wants to have us near him. Today, he wants us to be joyful. He's at God's right hand. He's in the most glorious position there could possibly be. Now, a human being, and I appreciated what Mike said in his prayer, a human being... We couldn't possibly conceive of the idea of getting near to him or of looking at him in that position of bright light that he's in. It says that there's this light that's so bright that nobody could approach. In the Old Testament, people who thought they had seen God, they thought, well, we're going to die now. We've seen God. The idea of seeing God would be, to the natural man, so fearful, so frightening. The Lord Jesus, in all of his glory, in all of his majesty, in all of his power, not only does he want us near him, he wants us to be joyful, and in order for us to be joyful, he has to serve us. That is amazing. That that glorious man would serve us. Now I want to read another Old Testament verse back in Exodus again. I know some of you know this very well, but some might not. So, Exodus 21. Reading verse 2. It says, If thou buy a Hebrew bondman... Six years shall he serve, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. If he came in alone, he shall go out alone. If he had a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master have given him a wife, and she have borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. But if the bondman shall say distinctly, I love my master, 
my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him before the judges and shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl and he shall be his bondman forever. This is a picture of the Lord Jesus. The Lord Jesus, we were reminded yesterday, he was the second man. As the second man, the one out of heaven, he was absolutely alone here in this world. No one were united to him. No one were connected to him. He was alone. But because he went into death, he has secured for himself an enormous company of people so that he won't be alone. He's going to have us with him. He says here, I love my master. That's what the Lord Jesus said regarding his God and Father. I love the Father. That the world may know that I love the Father. Arise, let us go hence to the cross. He said, I love my wife. Who's his wife? The assembly, his bride. Christ loved the assembly and gave himself for it. He says, I love my children. Who's his children? Each one of us who knows him as Saviour can say, the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. That's his love. And with love like that, he says, I am going to be a servant forever. You know, he was a servant when he was here in this world. Remember what it says here? Take his ear and bore his ear through to the doorpost. The ear of the Lord Jesus is spoken about in three different ways in Scripture. In the the book of Isaiah, and you can look these up yourself. It says about him as a perfect man living in this world. He says about God, he wakens my ear morning by morning to hear as the instructed. Every day, the Lord Jesus had his ear listening for the will of God. Now, how do we do that in our lives? We open our Bibles and we get into the presence of God and we ask God for help to show us His way in His Word. That's how the Lord Jesus had His ear opened morning by morning as the perfect servant serving God in everything during His life here. But then, there's another way His ear is spoken about. And that is in going into death. His ear was bored through with an awl. That is a figure of his sufferings, of his going to the cross. The ear of the Lord Jesus is a picture of him going into death. And the ear of the Lord Jesus is also a picture of him becoming a man. In I think it's in Psalm 40, which is quoted in the epistle to the Hebrews. It says, um, you've prepared ears for me. When that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 10, it's quoted like this. You've prepared a body for me. He came here in a body. It's pictured by God preparing ears for him. He lived here serving God. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And he came here to give his life. And to give his life a ransom for many. He served by coming into this world. He served by living in this world. He served by dying in this world. And his service hasn't stopped. 
Remember in John chapter 13, it speaks about the Lord Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, knowing that he was going back into the presence of God, knowing that the Father had, is about to exalt him above everything. And what does he do? He takes a towel, puts his clothes off, girds himself with the towel and stoops down and washes the feet of his disciples. He says symbolically, now that I'm glorified, I'm going to keep serving you. I'm going to keep serving you and I'm never going to stop serving you. And I want to read one other verse. And this might sound like a strange (coughs) verse. It's in Luke chapter 12, verse 37. Blessed are those bondmen whom the Lord on coming shall find watching. Verily I say to you that he will gird himself and make them recline at table and coming up will serve them. He served us by coming into this world. He served us by dying on the cross. He continues to serve us. Now he's at the right hand of God. Serve us as our priest, as as our advocate, as one who washes our feet. And he's going to keep serving us when we're in his presence forever and ever. That, to me, is just astounding. That one as great and glorious as that would serve us. If we think about the Lord Jesus humbling himself, becoming a man, coming into this world and, and, and being poor and lonely and hated and rejected and all of those things, we can kind of think, yeah, we understand that taking such a low position he would serve. That kind of makes sense. But now in this exalted position that he's in, he keeps serving. And why does he serve? Come back to the number one takeaway. Why is he serving us? He wants us to be joyful. He wants us to have joy. Okay, first epistle of John. 1 John 1. I'll read the verse we want to get to, and then we're going to work up to it. The verse we want to get to is um, actually in chapter 2, 1 John 2, verse 1. My children, these things I write to you in order that you may not sin. And if anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father... Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours alone, but also for the whole world. He says, I write to you that you might not sin. If anyone sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We have to see this in context. And in order to see it in context... We have to go back, and we won't read the verses because you can, you can skim down them while I'm talking. We have to go back right to the beginning of this letter. 
And what does John do at the beginning of the letter? He presents immediately, at the beginning of this epistle, he presents a beautiful man. A beautiful man in all of his perfection. That beautiful man is the Lord Jesus. And John says, we heard him, we saw him, we touched him, we contemplated him, we thought about him. And I'm going to tell you about him. I'm going to tell you about him because if I tell you about him, then you're going to be having fellowship with me. And John says, and if I tell you about him, and you're enjoying this with me, you're also going to be enjoying this with the Father. And you're going to be enjoying it with His Son, Jesus Christ. While we're talking together about the Lord Jesus, one we could see and hear and touch and meditate on and enjoy, while, while this is happening, we're having fellowship. Fellowship with one another and fellowship with the Father. And John says at the end of that paragraph, verse 4, why am I writing this? Why am I writing this? I'm writing this so that your joy may be full. Don't we know that? I reckon, looking around this room, that we've all experienced this in our lives. We know that we can do stuff. And I don't have to tell you what stuff is, because you know what stuff is in your life. You can do stuff, and when you do that stuff, you think, oh, this is alright. I'm having some fun. It's nice. Get a few laughs. I'm being occupied. I'm being entertained. And the end of it, like Solomon. Remember Solomon? He says, wealthiest man that ever was, the wisest man that ever was. I did everything. I, I got singing men, I got singing women. I got magicians and I got jokers and I got stand-up comics and I got, I got everything I could possibly get. Emptiness. Emptiness and a waste of time. So what did I do? I thought, well, I'll be, I'll be more constructive. I'll get all my money together and I'll get a landscape gardener and I'll get the biggest garden you can possibly imagine and the most beautiful plants and flowers and, and trees and things and I'll plant it all and it's just wonderful, magical. End of it all. Emptiness. We've known what those things are, haven't we? We might not have the money to do a huge landscape garden like Solomon. We might not have the money to fly to Edinburgh every year for the comedy festival. We might not have the money for enough of a, um, a phone plan so that we can download every movie we ever wanted to see. You don't need all of, all of that money in order to experience even just a taste of those things. But we know that those things, they just leave us empty. <coughs> but there's one thing that does give us joy. And this is, this is where I said, I reckon looking around this room, we've probably all experienced it. When we're focusing on the Lord Jesus, when we're looking at Him, when we're looking at His beauty, at His gentleness, His kindness, His greatness, His power, when we're thinking about him, you don't come to the end of that and go, that was empty. Do you? That's joy. And John says, I'm writing this so that your joy might be full. The end of paragraph number one in John's first letter, he says, the reason why I write this is that your joy might be full. And now the, 
end of the, the, the next group of words that John writes, it's in chapter 2, verse 1 that we read. He says again, the reason that I'm writing this is... Notice the similarity of those words? End of paragraph 1 and the, the end of the, the next group of words. The reason that I'm writing this is your joy might be full. The reason, the reason that I'm writing this is that you might not sin. See how the two statements link? What is it that's going to stop our joy being full? He wants us to be joyful. And that's why John says, these things I'm writing that you might... So what are these things that he's writing that we might not sin? And we have to look at the, the words in between verse 4 and chapter 2 in order to understand that. So the first thing he tells us is in verse 5 is that God is light. God is pure. God is holy. God is a God who... He can't have anything to do with sin. Sin has got nothing to do with God. God has got nothing to do with sin. This is what light is here. In him is no darkness at all. Sin and God, you don't even put that in the same sentence, because God is light. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. But not only is God light, verse 7, um, skip out most of the words here, just notice, focus down on, on a couple of the words. He is in the light. God is light, but God is in the light. What does that mean? God is light means that God is pure, God is holy, God has nothing to do with sin. God is in the light means that God has been completely and fully 100% revealed. God is in the light means that God is on full display. God is in the light means that he's not hiding anything about himself anymore. Remember in the Old Testament, it was necessary for him to hide things about himself because men just couldn't cope with seeing such glory and such greatness. But now God is in the light. Because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, we as believers... We can enjoy the fact that God is completely and 100% revealed. We don't have to hold back anymore. We don't have to think, oh, this is God, this is scary. We can say, no, this is wonderful, this is lovely, I can enjoy this. God is in the light. Now, in contrast to verse 6, to someone who is an unbeliever, who does not walk in the light, that means... He does not live in a realm where God has been fully revealed. In contrast to that, verse 7 describes what we have and what we are as believers. There's three things. Verse 7. If we walk in the light, that's the first thing. A believer walks in the light. The second thing, we have fellowship with one another. And the third thing, the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses from all sin. Now we've already spoken about that third one when we looked at the contrasts in Hebrews. Remember those contrasts? We have a purified conscience. Our sins are never remembered anymore. The sacrifice of the Lord Jesus never needs to be offered again. It was offered once. 
The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. We know that we are on our way to heaven, absolutely guaranteed, and that God is not standing over us saying, now I've got this question to you about your sins. Because he's no longer remembering those sins anymore because of the perfect finished work of the Lord Jesus. I want to make this really, really clear. Because this is a verse that people twist and muddle up. I'll tell you what they make it say. They make it, they make it say this. Walking in the light means living a good and upright life. If we live a good and upright life, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from sins that we're not committing because we're living a good and upright life. Um, uh, if we if we don't if we don't walk in if we don't live a good and upright life, then then the blood of Jesus we, we need to get the blood of Jesus Christ to to cleanse us from those sins that we're committing. That kind of interpretation just totally messes with what this verse is telling us. This verse is telling us that God is in the light. That means God has been fully revealed. It tells us that a believer is one who walks in this sphere where God is fully revealed. The believer is one who knows God as one who is fully revealed. And the believer is one who has fellowship with other believers. And the believer is one who can say, I know that I've got a purified conscience. My sins are never remembered anymore because the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is complete. What does the blood of Christ do? What's, what's its number one property? You talk about the, the properties of something. The properties of um, GIF is that it cleans from all stains on the fridge door when people have left grubby fingerprints there. But um, you, you go and buy the, the bottle of GIF and it says cleans from all stains. It doesn't mean that GIF is now currently um, on the fridge door, gradually making those stains evaporate. It's still there in the bottle. It says GIF cleans from all stains. The statement on the... Well, it probably doesn't exactly say that. But the, that statement on the label is telling you the properties of the thing. This statement here, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses from all sin. It doesn't mean that it is currently being applied to our bad conscience, wiping away our sins, because we haven't got a bad conscience anymore. If we know the Lord Jesus as our Saviour, our conscience is purified, completely purified. Now we've got to come back to this big question. I'm looking at this watch thing and I'm convinced that we're going to have to skip what I promised as address number three and continue this this afternoon. But we do commit sins, don't we? Now here's one of the next things that John says in these intervening words here in chapter one. Verse eight. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We've learned that we've got a purified conscience. We've learned that God is not remembering my sins anymore. We've learned that the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus is complete and perfect and never needs to be offered again. 
Am I therefore going to say, well, I don't have a sinful nature anymore. Somehow I'm now, uh, uh, because I've got a purified conscience, I am completely free from the existence of sin anymore. It's not, not in me at all. What does John say here? If we say such a thing, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. This, I'm not going to ask anyone to stand on the chair, but I will. If you think you don't have a sinful nature, please stand on the chair and jump up and down and wave your arms around. Okay, no, no one's going to do that. This is what he's talking about here. If we say we have no sin, if we say that the root of sin is no longer in me, I don't have a sinful nature anymore, then I'm just mad, completely deluded. Sadly, there are some people who do teach such things, and John is warning about this. To say such a thing would be crazy. But now more than that, verse 9, um, no, I'll jump verse 9, go to verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. As believers, not only do we have the root of sin as a nature living within us, but also something else happens. We do commit sins. And if anyone who is a believer is standing there saying, well... Yeah, I know I've got a sinful nature living within me, but because I've just reached such a high spiritual level, I've, I've got there, I've really got there. You know, I, I'm here now, and I don't, I don't commit sins anymore. What does John say? Man, this is not someone who's gone completely round the twist. This is someone who's actually making God a liar. Because for anyone to be able to think, well, I never commit sins anymore, the only way to do that is to redefine what sin is so that you can ignore something that you've done wrong or, or forget about something that you haven't done that you should have done that's right. And then by, by redefining that, you're saying, well, God's standards are not true, so God is a liar. I don't know which one's more serious, to say that you don't have a sinful nature or to say that you never commit sins. They're, they're equally bad, they're equally wrong. But remember, John is writing, writing these things so that we might not sin. John doesn't expect that the believer should go around saying, well, it's okay to sin. It's certainly not okay to sin, because what happens when we sin? When we sin, our joy isn't full anymore. Why is our joy not full anymore? Is it because our consciences are worried that God's going to judge my sin and I might end up in hell? Not at all. My joy is not full anymore because God, who is light, doesn't have anything to do with sin. I can't enjoy fellowship with Him. I can't enjoy fellowship with the Father. I can't enjoy fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. I can't really enjoy fellowship with my brothers and sisters. I'm going to pretend, and then they might not see through my pretense. But I'm not really, my joy isn't really full. And John wants our joy to be full. So in order for our joy to be full, something needs to happen in regard to those sins that we've committed. We don't need the blood of Christ. That's, that's dealt with our conscience. It's dealt with God's judgment. It's dealt with all of that. What do we need? We need an advocate with the Father. We also need, verse 9... 
We need to confess our sins. Now that's one of the things that John writes in order that we might not sin. Interesting, isn't it? He writes, if we confess our sins, in order that we might not sin. There's something shameful, there's something embarrassing, there's something that really kind of eats us up inside when we have to confess our sins. And that's one of the motivations that John gives us for not sinning. The fact that if we do sin, we're going to have to confess those sins. And in confessing those sins, there's, there's a very uncomfortable process that we have to go through. Now, in order for that to happen, in order for us to be brought to the point where we confess our sins, there's something going on behind the scenes. And that something going on behind the scenes is that the Lord Jesus, that glorified one, that one who wants us to be near him, that one who wants us to be joyful, he's doing something for us and with us and in us. And we don't have time now to look at that. So I'm going to leave that for this afternoon. This afternoon, hold me to it so I don't go over time or anything. This afternoon, we're going to just briefly consider what his activities are as our advocate, as the one at God's right hand, interceding for us and working on our behalf to give us our joy back again. We're going to look at what he's doing. We're going to briefly consider the example of Peter and also do a case study of Peter in our group discussion, our group Bible reading. And we'll look at three examples of men for whom the Lord Jesus works as advocate. One, his name's Joshua. He's a priest. The other, his name is Job. He was a priest as well. There's another whose name is Peter. Now, I won't be talking much about Peter because we're going to cover this in the, the group discussion. But one thing we will notice in each one of those cases is that Satan is standing there as an accuser. In regard to Peter, Satan went to God and he said, I want those disciples. I want them. God allowed Satan to grab hold of those disciples and really mess with them. With Job, Satan went to God and he said, I want that man. You're just looking after him. The only reason he's, he's on your side is because you're caring for him. Let me have him. And God said to Satan, okay, you can have him. With limits. And with Joshua, the high priest... Satan was there in the presence of God as well, accusing Joshua the high priest. In every case of a believer who needs the advocacy of Christ, Satan is there standing as an accuser. We're going to come to that this afternoon. Not only do we need the advocacy of Christ because we commit sins and that messes with our joy... We need the advocacy of Christ because Satan still has access into the presence of God 
And you know what he's doing about everyone, everyone here in this room? Sarah, Sarah. Satan is standing there in the presence of God saying, look at Sarah. Look at what she did. So not only is your joy inwardly being negatively affected, there is Satan in the presence of God attempting, if he could, to turn God against you. Now, he can't, of course. And we'll consider this afternoon the wonderful service of the Lord Jesus as our advocate so that he can restore our joy again.